1: On today's program, you will hear stories from Pete Musto, as well as Dr. Jill Robbins, who answers another question from a listener on Ask a Teacher. We close our program with an American story. This week, it is part one of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. But first, here is Pete Musto.
2: Health officials have predicted that some African countries will have many thousands of coronavirus cases by the end of April. African healthcare systems are less prepared to treat serious infectious diseases than ones in Europe, Asia, or any other part of the world. African hospitals also lack important healthcare equipment. As of Tuesday, there were more than 6000 coronavirus cases in Africa. John Nkengasong told reporters that number is very very close to where Europe was after a 40-day period. Nkengasong is the head of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or Africa CDC. The virus is an existential threat to our continent, he said. Almost all of Africa's 54 countries have reported cases of the coronavirus after Malawi reported its first case last week. Local transmission has been reported in many places. Nkengasong said officials are aggressively seeking medical equipment, such as ventilators, devices that help sick patients breathe. Officials also are exploring local manufacturing and repurposing. We've seen a lot of goodwill expressed to supporting Africa from partners in the international community, Nkengasong said. But he and others are waiting for those feelings to turn into action. Matsudiso Moedi is the director for Africa at the World Health Organization, or WHO. She told reporters the WHO does not know how many ventilators are available across the region to help people with breathing problems from COVID-19, the disease caused by the coronavirus. We are trying to find out this information from country-based colleagues, Moedi said. What we can say without a doubt is there is an enormous gap. Some countries have only a few ventilators. For example, the Central African Republic has just three. WHO official Zebulon Yadi said only a small percentage of people who are infected will need ventilators while about 15% may need intensive care. African health officials are calling for the world to work together at a time when even the richest countries are struggling with the medical crisis. Countries like Cameroon just reached out yesterday, Ivory Coast, Burkina Faso, asking, Look, we need tents because we're running out of hospital beds already, Nkengasong said. Even if equipment is found, getting it to countries is a growing problem. Africa's travel restrictions are spreading, although some countries have given permission to flights carrying supplies or humanitarian aid. Estimating the number of coronavirus cases in Africa is difficult, even in South Africa, the most developed country in the region. Officials there have had problems with testing. Other countries suffer from a shortage of testing supplies. But 43 countries in the WHO Africa Sub-Saharan region are now able to perform tests. That is up from two in early February. As more African countries establish lockdowns, The WHO and Africa CDC have expressed concern for the millions of poor people who need to go out daily to earn their living. This is a huge problem, Moedi said, noting that hundreds of thousands of children also are now out of school. It is too soon to tell how the lockdown in places like South Africa has affected the number of cases, she added. Health experts in Africa are working to understand whether some conditions, such as Africa's young population, might help in fighting off the virus. It is estimated that about 70% of Africans are under age 30. Experts are also studying how the widespread problems of poor nutrition, HIV, and other diseases might affect people's ability to fight off infection. Our greatest fear is that programs dealing with those ongoing issues will be harmed by the current crisis, Song said. I'm Pete Musto.
3: This week we answer a question from Raphael. He asks, "What's the difference between two and very?" Dear Raphael, thanks for asking this question. These words often cause problems for people who are learning English. That is because translating them into your own language may not give you a complete understanding of how they are used. Very and to are both adverbs. They come before an adjective. The basic difference is that very emphasizes the word that follows it. Two before a word means there is more than what is wanted. You can see how this works clearly with the adjective much in these sentences. I love chocolate very much. I eat one piece of chocolate a day. He loves chocolate too much. He eats a whole box of chocolates every day. We use very to show there is a higher degree of some quality. It often appears in sentences with a positive meaning. That is a very good movie. My dog is always very happy to see me. On the other hand, too means there is more of the quality than you want. This shows a negative idea. For example, that movie is too violent for me. The main difference between very and too is that using too suggests that there is some problem. On a really hard day, you might come home and say, I am too tired to eat, so we should not go out for dinner. On a better day, you might say, I am very tired, but I can go out for dinner. Do you like Thai food? It has many spices. Someone who likes it would say, I love Thai food. It is very spicy. Someone who does not like spices would say, Thai food is too spicy. And that's Ask a Teacher for this week. Thank you very much for asking your question. I'm Jill Robbins.
0: People may have questions about the new coronavirus. Can it survive in cold weather? Can the virus be spread by mosquito bites? Is there a vaccine or medication that prevents it? Is there any medicine that cures it? The answer to all of these questions is no. But there are ways to protect yourself. Wash your hands. Cover your cough. Stay at home if you are sick or advised by local authorities. For more information, visit the following websites. The World Health Organization at www.who.int or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention at www.cdc.gov.
4: Now, the special English program, American Stories. Today, we begin a new series from a book by American writer Edgar Rice Burroughs. The book is called A Princess of Mars, It is the first book in a series that Mr. Burroughs wrote about a man who travels to Mars during the last years of the 1800s. There, the man meets strange beings and sees strange sights. At first, he is a captive, then a warrior, and after many battles, a prince of a royal family. Shep O'Neill begins the story of A Princess of Mars.
5: I am a very old man. How old, I do not know. It is possible I am a hundred, maybe more. I cannot tell because I have never aged as other men do. So far as I can remember, I have always been a man of about 30. I appear today as I did 40 years ago, yet I feel that I cannot go on living forever. Someday, I will die the real death from which there is no escape. I do not know why I should fear death, I, who have died two times, and am still alive. I have never told this story. I know the human mind will not believe what it cannot understand. I cannot explain what happened to me. I can only tell of the ten years my dead body lay undiscovered in an Arizona cave. My name is John Carter. I am from the state of Virginia. At the close of the Civil War, I found myself without a home, without money and without work. I decided the best plan was to search for gold in the great deserts of the American Southwest. I spent almost a year searching for gold with another former soldier, Captain James Powell, also of Virginia. We were extremely lucky. In the winter of 1865, we found rocks that held gold. Powell was trained as a mining engineer. He said we had uncovered over a million dollars worth of gold in only three months. But the work was slow, with only two men and not much equipment. So we decided Powell should go to the nearest settlement to seek equipment and men to help us with the work. On March 3rd. 1866, Powell said goodbye. He rode his horse down the mountain toward the valley. I followed his progress for several hours. The morning Powell left was like all mornings in the deserts of the great southwest, clear and beautiful. Not much later I looked across the valley. I was surprised to see three riders in the same place where I had last seen my friend. After watching for some time, I decided the three riders must be hostile Indians. Powell, I knew, was well-armed and an experienced soldier, but I knew he would need my aid. I found my weapons, placed a saddle on my horse, and started as fast as possible down the trail taken by Powell. I followed as quickly as I could until dark. About nine o'clock, the moon became very bright. I had no difficulty following Powell's trail. I soon found the trail left by the three riders following Powell. I knew they were Indians. I was sure they wanted to capture Powell. Suddenly I heard shots far ahead of me. I hurried ahead as fast as I could. Soon I came to a small camp. Several hundred Apache Indians were in the center of the camp. I could see Powell on the ground. I did not even think about what to do, I just acted. I pulled out my guns and began shooting. The Apaches were surprised and fled. I forced my horse into the camp and toward Powell. I reached down and pulled him up on the horse by his belt. I urged the horse to greater speed. The Apaches, by now, realized that I was alone and quickly began to follow. We were soon in very rough country. The trail I chose began to rise sharply. It went up and up. I followed the trail for several hundred meters more until I came to the mouth of a large cave. It was almost morning now. I got off my horse and laid Powell on the ground. I tried to give him water, but it was no use. Powell was dead. I laid his body down and continued to the cave. I began to explore the cave. I was looking for a safe place to defend myself, or perhaps for a way out, but I became very sleepy. It was a pleasant feeling. My body became extremely heavy. I had trouble moving. Soon I had to lay down against the side of the cave. For some reason. I could not move my arms or legs. I lay facing the opening of the cave. I could see part of the trail that had led me here. And now I could see the Apaches. They had found me, but I could do nothing. Within a minute, one of them came into the cave. He looked at me, but he came no closer. His eyes grew wide, his mouth opened. He had a look of terror on his face. He looked behind me for a moment and then fled. Suddenly I heard a low noise behind me. So could the rest of the Apaches. They all turned and fled. The sound became louder, but still I could not move. I could not turn my head to see what was behind me. All day I lay like this. I tried again to rise, and again, but I still could not move. Then I heard a sharp sound. It was like a steel wire breaking. I quickly stood up. My back was against the cave wall. I looked down. There before me lay my body. For a few moments, I stood looking at my body. I could not bring myself to touch it. I was very frightened. The sounds of the cave, and the sight of my body forced me away. I slowly backed to the opening of the cave. I turned to look at the Arizona night. I could see a thousand stars. As I stood there, I turned my eyes to a large red star. I could not stop looking at it. It was Mars, the red planet, the red god of war. It seemed to pull me near. Then, for a moment, I closed my eyes. There was an instant of extreme cold and total darkness. Suddenly, I was in deep, dreamless, peaceful sleep. I opened my eyes upon a very strange land. I immediately knew then I was on Mars. Not once did I question this fact. My mind told me I was on Mars, as your mind tells you that you are upon Earth. You do not question the fact, nor did I. I found myself lying on a bed of yellow-colored grass that covered the land for kilometers. The time was near the middle of the day and the sun was shining full upon me. It was warm. I decided to do a little exploring. Springing to my feet, I received my first Martian surprise. The effort to stand carried me into the Martian air to the height of about one meter. I landed softly upon the ground, however without incident I found that I must learn to walk all over again my muscles were used to the gravity of earth Mars has less gravity my attempts to walk resulted in jumps and hops which took me into the air I once landed on my face I soon learned that it took much less effort for me to move on Mars than it did on earth Near me was a small, low wall. Carefully, I made my way to the wall and looked over. It was filled with eggs, some already broken open. Small, green creatures were in them. They looked at me with huge red eyes. As I watched the fierce-looking creatures, I failed to hear twenty full-grown Martians coming from behind me. They had come without warning. As I turned, I saw them. One was coming at me with a huge spear, with its sharp tip pointed at my heart.
4: This is Bob Doty. You have been listening to American Stories and our version of A Princess of Mars. The voice of John Carter was Shep O'Neill. Our program was written for radio, produced and directed by Paul Thompson. Join us again next week for the next part of the Edgar Rice Burroughs story A Princess of Mars, on the special English program, American Stories, on The Voice of America.
0: that's our program for today. Listen again tomorrow to learn English through stories from around the world. I'm Jonathan Evans.
1: And I'm Ashley Thompson. Talk To Us is back. Practice your English conversation skills with VOA Learning English teachers each weekday at 12 o'clock UTC time. For more information on how to join the lesson, visit our website, learningenglish.voanews.com. Go to our Facebook for information about the upcoming lesson and follow us on Instagram at VOA Learning English.